Thank you, Ted. Good morning. Give me the benefit of your convictions, if you have any, but keep your doubts to yourself, for I have enough of my own. So said German philosopher from the 6th and the 18th century, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Friends, do you have doubts in your life? Do you have uncertainty in your life? Of course you do. Feelings of doubt and uncertainty are all part of the human experience. Since we are not omniscient, since we do not know everything, doubt will abound. We all have doubts. And a side note, not all doubt is bad. I may choose not to have coffee at small group last night because I doubt I'll be able to sleep at night if I do, right? So not all doubts are bad. But doubt, in the religious sense, can quickly have adverse spiritual effects. And it's this form of doubt that we must fight. And it's this form of doubt that also, sadly, all Christians are prone to have. We can doubt God's goodness, or we can doubt God's sovereignty over all things. It's undeniably true that God is good and that God is sovereign, but we can tend to doubt this. Or we can doubt God's promises, or we can doubt God's purposes for the future. We lose sight of the fact that we shall reign forever with Christ here in the new earth. Or perhaps worst of all, we can doubt our own salvation. Doubting God and his promises leaves us uncomfortable, unsettled, and worst of all, unassured of what will happen to us in the future. If left unchecked, doubt will drive you to despair, lack of passion, and eventually to complete uselessness. The rise of doubt in your life moves you from the activity of the ball field to the boredom of the bench and finally to the cowardice of the couch, unwilling even to put on the Lord's jersey. Now what is the remedy for such doubt? It's a full understanding of the facts of the Christian life and a full embrace of their implications. And that is what Paul sees fit to give us at the end of Romans 8. Go ahead and turn there. We will be concluding Romans chapter 8 this morning. And Paul has been eager to present the gospel message to the Roman Christians whom he's writing to, a people whom he had not yet met. He had heard of their faith secondhand and knew there was a robust and growing church there and he desired to minister the gospel of truth to them. Why? Well, surely his aim was to strengthen their faith in the truth. Surely to increase their knowledge of what was true and focus their attention on it. Why else would he write eight straight chapters, eight straight chapters which make up the most theologically robust explanation of saving faith that has ever been penned in the history of the world? He wanted their knowledge to grow. He wanted their faith to increase. And by means of this, he wanted to dispel any doubts that they may have had of their newfound faith and consequently to instill in them a greater love for the God of their faith. And so at the conclusion of Romans 1 to 8, the greatest gospel treatise known to man, Paul escalates into a euphoric finale. Here in these last nine verses, we find the triumphant fortissimo of the pipe organ to conclude Paul's majestic gospel song. Romans 8 has already arguably been, arguably been the greatest chapter in Romans, and now we conclude with the greatest of promises. Paul's looking back on everything he has penned, and it lifts, lifts him to new heights as he exclaims these great 
and awesome, doubt-destroying words of love. If Romans 8 is Paul's Mount Everest, then verses 31 to 39 is the peak. Let's not wait any longer. Let's see this glorious view of God's gospel from the mountain peak that our confidence in him may dispel doubt and burst into praise. We'll pick it up in verse 31 this morning. Romans 8, 31. Follow along as I read. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who, is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we open this text. Lord, we're overwhelmed at your love. It just exudes out of this passage, that I pray you would grip our hearts and minds this morning with the truth. Fill us with knowledge of your love. Dispel all doubts, Lord. May we know you more and trust you more today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, did you see it as we read? Did you catch it? It's love. Love. God's love secures you and enables you to abandon doubt. It's the love of God that holds us fast, that holds us tight. We sing, he will hold me fast, he will hold me fast for my Savior. What? Loves me so. He will hold me fast. Friends, we need this morning to realize the full extent of God's love for us so that we may rebuke all doubts. Realize the full extent of God's love for you so that you may rebuke all doubts. Well, what is the full extent of God's love? Let's ask Paul. Paul, just how far will God's love go? Just how far will God's love go? The answer is that love sent Christ to die. That's point number one. Love sent Christ to die. And we'll see this in verses 31 to 34. Look at your text with me. Romans 8, 31 begins. What then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? As already mentioned, Paul is referring back to his entire letter here. Paul is referring back, not just to the last couple of verses, not just to chapter eight, but to everything he has written. In chapter nine, verse one, he is going to make a sharp change in direction. So this really is his conclusion to his gospel written out. And aren't we glad that the Romans needed to hear this because we today get to hear it as well. 
The gospel message has been laid out in Romans. Romans 1 to 3 speaks of how we are sinners, lost at the fall, lost in our own rebellion against God, with no hope of eternal life in heaven. But God sent Jesus, Romans 3 also tells us, to be the propitiation for our sin. That is to stand in our place and to take God's wrath. Romans 4 explains how this saving grace can only be received by faith. Romans 5 explains the peace we have with God once we are found in him. Romans 6 tells how we are now to live to God and be dead to sin. So sin shall not have rule anymore over us. We are freed to live for righteousness. But then Romans 7 explains the sad truth that we still have sin within us. But the fact that we hate our sins is evidence of the changed nature we have. And then Romans 8 promises that wonderful, wonderful promise that there is no condemnation for our sins because we are in Christ Jesus who died to set us free and who died to make us a part of God's family and who died to bring us all the way to glory. Friends, what shall we say to these things? God's gospel has shone forth before our eyes, both in this chapter and the entire gospel of Romans thus far. And what can we say? Thank you? That falls short. Hallelujah, praise God. Perhaps it's a little better, but no amount of praise is truly enough. Friends, there's nothing we can say. It's overwhelming. And so we lay our hands upon our mouths and we can't say anything. What can we say? We must go forward and simply confess with Paul that if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who is against us? And it's in this little phrase that we see the entire gospel. The entire gospel. Friends, God is for us. God is for you. God is on your side. Now, doesn't that that sound a little backwards? Shouldn't Paul say that we are on God's side? After all, if God's like the team captain and we're his draft picks, wouldn't we say that we're on God's team? But that's not what Paul says. Paul goes so, so much deeper than that. You see, every person with half a brain would want to be on God's side, would want to be on God's team. Just think of how great God is. Why wouldn't you want to be on his team? There's nothing special in saying that you're on God's side. But God being on your side? The entire gospel is found in the fact that God is on your side. It takes God choosing you and electing you and sending his son to die for you so that now God has invested in grace so much, his grace so much in you that Paul can say God is for you. God is on your team. He goes to bat for you. He's on your side. And Paul puts the whole gospel into just these four little words. God is for us. God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Now, there are many who are actually against us. It's not that Paul's saying we have no enemies. We have enemies. We have the devil and his demons. Right? They are against us. But it's like, it's like a flea versus hammer, right? There's no contest. Why? Because God is for us. And so if God is on our side, no one can successfully be against us. There's a great quote from John Chrysostom, the golden-tongued preacher of the late 300s, 300s AD. He wrote, Yet those that be against us, so far are they from thwarting us at all, that even without their will, they become to us the causes of crowns 
and procures of countless blessings in that God's wisdom turns their plots unto our salvation and glory. See how really no one is against us. End of quote. As the devil tries to drag you down with pain and suffering, we've already learned in verses 17 to 30 how God is going to use that for our good. God has a plan in all that. Even your enemy's worst plot against you still brings you good. How can that possibly be? It's because God is for you. God is for you. And that's the gospel. What matters is not that you're on God's side, but that God is on your side. God is on your side. And such words, such great words gave great strength to Philip Melanchthon, the close friend of reformer Martin Luther. Melanchthon was an eminent scholar of the Greek and he also had a dear pastoral heart. He had a great care for people and he was the pastoral heart behind Luther's titanic gospel movement. Luther was a little bit of a bull charging ahead and Melanchthon would come along and clean up the mess so to speak. He was the pastoral heart, and they fought together for the cause of Christ until they passed away. Where did Melanchthon get his strength? How did a peaceful, studious man stand with Luther against the world? It was this verse that empowered him. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a verse he quoted in his lectures and personal letters more than any other verse of scripture. And it hangs today over his study wall in Wittenberg where visitors can still see it. What a powerful, powerful little phrase. If you've been saved by Christ, God is for you. As it strengthened Melanchthon, let it strengthen you every day. Now, how is this, how is this seemingly unbelievable claim true? How, how is this actually true? Well, Paul spends the next three verses backing up such a grandiose assertion. We dare not miss it. Look at verse 32. Verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? It says God's own son. God's own son he gave up. He did not spare him. If you think back to the Old Testament, the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, Abraham was called to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, and ultimately, he did not have to. It's a, point, it's a, it's a poignant picture of, of Christ being given up. It points to it, but it does not in any means fulfill it. Isaac was not sacrificed, but Jesus Christ was. God's son was sacrificed. His own son. God's son is not his offspring, but his very self. He is God himself. You see, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they have had perfect communion throughout eternity past. They have had perfect communion forever. They are all equals, but with different roles. And to help us finite humans understand their roles, God uses human language to label one person of the Trinity Father and another one Son. So we can differentiate and better understand their roles. So when God sent his own son, he's not sending a separate person. He's sending himself. Jesus even told his disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. John 14, 9. They're one. It's not that the father was crucified. He was not, but the son was. And so God gave himself up for you and me. He did not spare himself from taking your place on the cross, from suffering your condemnation. 
Jesus, the son, was delivered over to the wrath of God the Father for you, for love. Octavius Winslow says it so well. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy. But the Father for love. Love sent Christ to the cross to die. We don't see love, the word, in verse 32, but it's truly the reason for it. Flip back over a page or two in your Bibles to Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8. What does it say there about God and his love? Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love of God displayed. We have the beautiful, well-known verse of John 3.16, which begins, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. The sending of Jesus Christ to earth to die for us is the greatest manifestation of God's love this world has ever known or could have ever known. His sending Jesus to die proves just how much God loves us. God's love for us is astronomically off the charts. We can't even comprehend it. Now just look at the end of verse 32. Look at the end. It's what it says, if God did that, the greatest demonstration of love, won't he also freely give us all things? Won't he also freely give us all things? Now imagine going to Bellevue Square Mall, where they have a small Tesla dealership store right in the side. I don't know. It's outside one of those big, uh, like the big Nordstrom type thing. You walk out and it's like, whoa, there's some really cool cars and a lot of cool lighting over there. Let me go see what's going on. And there's like 40 people all trying to sit in the car. And Veronica were in there one day and we asked what the starting price was. And with no tricks, $75,000 starting price for a Tesla. Wow. Well, so you're there, let's say. Let's say you go there and you're there. You're checking out the cars on a whim and you notice they're having a yearly drawing for free. Right? Just a yearly drawing for a free, souped up, and tricked out Tesla. All taxes paid. And today's the final day to enter. You just got to drop your name and address in the bucket. And so you drop your name and address in, and incredibly, the next day you get a call. You've won. You've won a brand new Tesla. And so you go in to pick it up. You still think this is a joke. You go in to pick it up. They give you the car. You sign the title. And wow, it's yours. But then they refuse to give you the key. They refuse to give you the key. Now, how ridiculous would that be? If the car is yours, then everything you need to drive it is yours too. If Christ is yours, then everything you need to live life in him is yours too. It's all freely given to you. Everything we need for this life and the next is being freely given to us. 2 Peter 1.3 claims that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things that pertain to life and godliness are freely given to us. Friends, if God has saved you by giving up his son to die for you, won't he also take care of you? Won't his love go that far as well to take care of you in this life? Won't he shape your character for good with the spiritual riches found in Jesus? God's love for you, demonstrated to the nth degree on the cross, will also freely give you the greatest of imaginable gifts. 
not, not immediately or not to suit your fleshly fancies, as many false prosperity prophets like to claim, but in time and fully in heaven, you will freely receive, you will freely receive, future tense in the Greek, you will freely receive everything. You will, as verse 17 tells us, partake of the inheritance of Christ. You're his co-heir. You'll participate in all that comes with that. That's an amazing thing. God's love goes so far to reach you, to save you, and also to take care of you, to change you and bless you. Now verse 33 continues Paul's string of rhetorical questions. We've got such a a spirit-inspired literary device here that helps us raise our attention and pique our focus. In verse 33, he asks another rhetorical question. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Now, we note here that Paul starts to use courtroom verbiage, technical terms that saturated Roman law courts. The, 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 the phrase, who will bring a charge, is the technical Greek term used in the law court to basically say, who will bring an accusation to the stand? Who will bring an accusation to the stand? And Paul's putting it, the verb in the future tense. He's looking forward to a future time. And such terminology points us to the future final judgment of God before his throne. I think that's what Paul has in mind here. The future final judgment of God before his throne. When your days on earth are done and you stand before God, who will bring an accusation to God's grand courtroom against you? We could rightly answer. Lots of people. Lots of people could, right? Everyone I've sinned against could bring a charge against me. The devil has lots of charges he can lay against me. In fact, his Hebrew name, Satan, literally means the accuser. That's his whole business, to show and reveal all that you've done wrong before God. But that's all beside the point. That all doesn't matter. Why is that? Our verse tells us. God is the one who justifies. Not your accuser. God is the one who justifies. And justify here is another technical courtroom term. It means to declare righteous. Or in today's parlance, to declare not guilty. To declare not guilty. Satan and others can accuse you all they want before God, but it does not matter. God will simply sit there and look at his son whose blood was shed for you and declare of your immortal soul not guilty. This one is righteous in my sight, not guilty. So friend, when, when Satan comes at you tonight or next week or later to remind you of all your failures, to strive to make you doubt God's love for you, to make you doubt God's salvation on account of your sins, though they be many, you can look Satan in the proverbial eyes and say, what of it? So what? What of it, Satan? Accuse me all you want. It is God who justifies me. And God is on my side. Yes, as saved Christians, we still repent of our sins when they occur. We still mourn over our iniquitous failures. Absolutely. But no, we do not listen to the accusations of the evil one, nor doubt our right standing with the king or judge of the earth. Why? It is God who justifies And God is on your side. God is on your side. And more than that, verse 34 adds another rhetorical question. Who is the one who condemns? Who is the one who condemns? 
Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who can condemn you? Jesus tells us in Matthew 10.28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. God is the only one who can do that. He is the only one we must fear. And if you're not saved this morning, listen closely to Jesus. You need to fear God. He has the power to send you to hell. He has the power to condemn you. But Paul is speaking here in Romans 8 to Christians. And so he asks, who is the one who condemns you, Christian? Though the answer is that it would be God, notice where Paul goes. Christ Jesus is he who died. God can't possibly condemn you because he sent his beloved son to die for you and to take his condemnation upon himself, to take your condemnation upon himself. Jesus stands in the gap. He stands in the way. But even more than Christ's death on your behalf, we know as this verse says, he was raised. God raised him from the dead and he ascended on high to God's right hand where he himself is interceding for us. He's raised from the dead. He's conquered death. And he's currently at God's right hand, that position of great power, where Psalm 110.1, great prophetic psalm, Psalm 110.1 tells us he is awaiting God's perfect timing to send him back to earth and to rule with a mighty scepter. Christ is there. And other scriptures emphasize that he is sitting there. Scriptures such as Ephesians 1.20 or Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is sitting at God's right hand. Theologians of old like to call this the finished work of Christ the finished work of Christ. The demands to procure your justification have been met and now your great high priest is sitting down, proof that his sacrificial worth on your behalf is complete. And so Jesus Christ is there at the throne of God, interceding on your behalf. And what's he, do, what's he interceding? What's he praying for you for? For your justification. He's pleading with God to keep you secure in the faith. We have an advocate with the Father, 1 John 2, 1 tells us. He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them, Hebrews 7, 25 proclaims. Christ is able to save you through his finished work and his ongoing intercession. Pastor Brian Borgman puts it this way. He says, Jesus paid it all, and then he prayed it all the way through. Friend, you don't get to heaven because you believed really hard. We don't get to heaven because we persevere to the end on our own strength. We don't persevere to the end just to get to heaven. You get to heaven because Jesus paid your penalty on that old rugged cross and then he prays you all the way home. We still sin even after we've been saved. And your sins post-conversion still have consequences. And the devil is going to accuse you over and over and over again on account of these. And if God had, think of this, if God had saved you and given you a clean slate at salvation, which he does, but then he says, good luck not sinning again the rest of your life. I really hope you make it. And then you're just left on your own. Heaven would be empty it would still be impossible to get there. And so Jesus died to save us 
And now he's praying to keep us. This is what I think Romans 5.10 is referring to when it says, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Right? Christ lives ever to make intercession for us. In Jesus' life, having ascended bodily to God's right hand, he now secures our salvation by his intercession for us. Now what that looks like exactly, how he's doing that, we don't know. Is he praying around the clock for each individual? Maybe. Or is his silent presence before God with the scars in his hands, feet, and side all he needs to intercede? Maybe. We don't know the how, but we do know the what. Jesus is interceding for us before the throne. And like the Holy Spirit that we learned of a few weeks ago, Jesus is perfect, and so his intercession for you is also perfect. In his resurrected eternal life, he cannot and will not fail to pray you all the way to heaven. Your perseverance in the faith is caused by Christ's intercession for you and not your own efforts. God's grace and love are so magnificent that he not only promises beyond doubt your eternal salvation through his son, but then he puts it in the heart of his son to intercede for you to keep you saved till you get there. Friends, you're doubly covered. God the Father in time past has secured your salvation and Jesus the Son in time present and time future is securing it as well. Your salvation cannot be lost. No one can bring an accusation against you. No one can condemn you. You're safe in the arms of God. And on what basis? Love. Love, the love of the Father that sent his Son to die for you so that you can have all the eternal riches with Christ. Do you believe it? God's love for you is beyond words. What shall we say to these things? God is for you. How could we ever doubt his love? How can we be uncertain anymore about our eternal hope? Okay, Paul, a voice chimes in at this point looking for a way out. So if I'm in Christ, I can't be condemned. That's awesome. But suppose I were to be separated from Christ. That justification would then no longer apply to me, right? And so Paul asks a final rhetorical question in verse 35, which launches us into our second and final point. Love secures you forever in Christ. First, we ask just how far will God's love go? Love sent Christ to die was the response. Now we must ask, just how strong is God's love? To which we respond, point two, love secures you forever in Christ. Look with me again at verses 35 and 36. Verse 35 says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul now asks, is it possible to be separated from God's love? If it's the love of God and the love of Jesus that saves us, is there anything that can remove his love from us? If salvation were a giant umbrella that keeps off the acid rain of condemnation, is there anything that could move us from under this umbrella? And so he lists Seven things in verse 35, seven events that can occur in our life that can cause us to doubt God's love for us. 
though we may in fact doubt God's love, can such events actually cause God's love to be removed and thus our salvation nullified? When we don't feel God's love in the fire and in the storm, is it because his love is gone? That's what Paul's asking. Let's look quickly at these seven events that Paul lists. First, tribulation. Tribulation, it's a word for strong pressure used in treading out grapes. It's the pressure that bursts the grapes, and it's the pressure of life situations that would make us burst. Second, distress. He says distress, and this refers simply to hardships, which have a combination of both outward affliction coming at you and inward turmoil. Thirdly, persecution. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's straight-up persecution for the faith. The fourth one, famine, is simply hunger, lack of food. This was very common in Paul's world because Costco had not been invented yet. Fifthly, we've got nakedness. This is basically being caused by lack of clothes simply because said person had no means of getting any, right? He had no means of obtaining any clothes. It's an extreme want. It's poverty to the utmost extreme. Six is peril. Peril is danger of any sort. Christians of Paul's day faced it often with persecution. And the last one is sword, which refers directly to death or perhaps capital punishment for the faith. Friends, when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, he'd been through the first six of these many times over. In fact, in fact each of these six words match exactly what Paul describes of his own life in 2 Corinthians 11, 26, and 27, and also 12, 10. He's where he describes his own life's trials and his own sufferings to back up his apostleship to the Corinthians. He's experienced these. He knows these full well, and he knows God's love will not depart from him. And at the end of his life, he would experience number seven at, by capital punishment at the hand of Nero. Friends, you may experience some or all of these as well. And typically, we Christians, we tend to think that if God loves us, he wouldn't make us go through such suffering. If God and Christ are on our side, then we won't face tribulations in life. The Christians of Paul's day often thought that way, and sometimes we do today as well. But that's not God's way with us. He does regularly allow these things into our life. Paul's a great example. And to prove this to you, and to prove this to the Roman Christians, Paul in verse 36 quotes from Psalm 44, 22. Turn to Psalm 44 with me if you would. Psalm 44, smack in the middle of your Bibles. Psalm 44, 22. Psalm 44 is a beautiful lament song by the faithful men and women of Israel. In the first eight verses of this psalm, they sing of God's faithfulness and their own deep trust in God. Just look at Psalm 44, verse 8. They proclaim, in God we have boasted all day long and we give thanks to your name forever. These are the saved, the elect in Israel. But then verse 9 turns a sharp corner. Yet you have rejected us and brought us dishonor. Whoa, this elect people of God, they love him. They know they are loved by God, and yet they are suffering big time. In fact, they are feeling so entirely rejected by God that verses 9 to 22 is one long complaint that chronicles their feelings of rejection by God. They sound like us today sometimes. God, don't you love me? Why am I suffering like this? And verse 22 in Psalm 44, which Paul quotes, is the climax of their complaint. Look at verse 22. It says, But for your sake, 
we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And the final four verses then plead with God. They plead with him to do something about it, to act on their behalf. Friends, the singers of Psalm 44, as I said, were the faithful in Israel. And yet they felt like God did not love them. But their feelings and our feelings are not true reality. And Paul points to this psalm via its climactic verse, verse 22, to remind us that throughout redemptive history, Old Testament, New Testament, and today, God's love for us often allows for great, great trials and for great, great hardships, sometimes even death. Sometimes we are even considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And yet God's love is still fully upon us. Calvin says, it's not a new thing for the Lord to permit his saints to be undeservedly exposed to the cruelty of the ungodly. It's not a new thing. Friends, when you're in the worst of trials, by all means, pray. Cry out to God for help. Pour out your anxieties upon him. Cast them upon him. Plead with him even to act on your behalf. But don't doubt his love for you. Don't doubt his care and concern for you. His love for you is unfathomably deep, deeper than any wound can pierce. And one Cambodian, one Cambodian man named Haim knew this full well. Haim, H-A-I-M. This, his story of trust in the midst of slaughter is attested in the book Killing Fields, Living Fields, Faith in Cambodia by Don Cormack. Now Haim and his family lived in Cambodia. And they were Christians. In 1975, with the rise of the Khmer Rouge, they knew as Christians, their days were numbered. Sure enough, one night, a group of Khmer Rouge teenage soldiers wielding AK-47s broke into their home, tied them up, and let them suffer through the night, awaiting their fate in the morning. Throughout the night, Haim and his family prayed. They cried. And they sing hymns. What was their crime? They loved Christ. That was their only crime. They loved Christ. At dawn, they're, they're taken outside, and one of the teenage soldiers hands them all shovels and makes them dig one big grave. Once the grave has been dug, I asks for a time of prayer with his family. After praying, he urges the soldiers themselves to repent and believe in Christ. During this lull, one of Haim's sons, in a panic, leapt to his feet and bolted into the surrounding brush and disappeared. Haim jumped up and with amazing coolness and authority persuaded the Khmer Rouge not to chase the boy, but to allow him to call him back. Stunned onlookers watched as Haim called to this child to come back to return and to die together with his family. He called out, What comparison, my son, stealing a few more days of life in the wilderness, a fugitive, red and alone, to joining your family here momentarily around this grave, but very soon around the throne of God, free forever in paradise. After a few tense minutes, the brush parted and the weeping boy rejoined his kneeling family. Now we're ready to go, 
I am told the Khmer Rouge. What can separate us from the love of Christ? Was Haim and his family separated from the love of Christ? Was God's love true for everyone but Haim and his family? No. God's love does not mean that he removes trials and sufferings. Rather, verse 37 tells us that in them, God makes us overwhelmingly conquer. Overwhelmingly conquer. Haim conquered. You in Christ can conquer in every scenario. Rather than be found outside God's love in the bleakest night, God's love sustains you and enables you to more than conquer. The verb for conquer is a rare one. It's hooper nico. You can hear hooper, which means uber or super, and you can hear nico, which is the verb form of Nike, immortalized to us by that swoosh check mark. It means victorious, conqueror. And so Paul combines these two Greek words for one powerful verb. In every trial, Christians super conquer. We don't just conquer, we really, truly, overwhelmingly conquer. And rather than prove God's love is not upon us, trials and pain do the opposite. They prove God does love us. He brings us through them. He makes us like Christ. We super conquer by the Spirit in us as we stand firm in the faith, proclaim Christ in our trial, and trust God no matter the outcome. Far from convincing us that God does not love us, such events should actually convince us that he does. And here Satan's plots are ruined again. Just like at Calvary, Satan's supposed greatest victory in killing God's son was actually his greatest defeat. Death was defeated. The chains of sin were broken. And every trial Satan throws your way, God turns it for your good. God's love bursts through the worst in your life. And based on Paul's own experience, and based on what he knows from Scripture, particularly Psalm 44, Paul can exclaim in the loudest possible voice, verses 38 through 39, he says, I am convinced to the fullest there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not life, not death, not angels, nor principalities, not things present, nor things to come, not powers, not height, nor depth, nor any single thing that has ever been created. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am convinced, he says. And how can Paul be convinced? How can he not be convinced, rather, in the face of such great love? How can we not be convinced ourselves? There's nothing, absolutely, unequivocally, categorically, unconditionally, nothing that can separate you from God's love. Not death nor life, which sums up just about everything by itself. Every person experiences both of these. Not life or death can separate us. Not angels nor principalities, which refer to the spiritual world, the realm of the unseen. No elect angel, no cast down demon can separate us from God. Not things present nor things to come. Speaking of the things we experience in life now or the things we're going to experience. Not powers, which refer to things of authority. There's no human government, no spiritual power. Nothing can separate us from God's love, not height, not depth. These terms are for the Greek astronomy, and they cover the furthest star in the universe to the lowest molecule on the earth. We're covered in God's love throughout the universe. And just in case someone tries to wiggle a finger and find a loophole, Paul states, nor any other created thing. He covers it all. Nothing that God has created can separate you from his love. Nothing. 
but what about my own sin? I don't see that in the list. What a, none of these things can separate me. Sure, but can I sin and fall away? No, two things in the text make this clear. First, believer, you're a created thing. You're a created thing. No created thing can separate you from the love of God. You cannot remove yourself from God's love. Further, verse 35, Paul asks, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And the clear answer was no one. No one. Do you think you are powerful enough to be exempt? Do you think you can separate yourself? You're the only one? No one can do it? Oh, just you? No. No one can separate you from Christ's love, not even yourself. Nothing can separate you from his love. You are eternally secure in Christ. Love sent Christ to die. Love secures you forever. God is for you. Oh, friends, may we never doubt again. Let your minds and hearts be enriched and enthralled with the love of God, our Savior. How his love rivets our confidence, assuages all fears, fixes our eyes, directs our steps, proclaims our peace, satisfies our souls, and sets our hope on eternity. Do you know this love? Have you forsaken all other loves, even your own life, and put your trust in Christ? Friend, if you have not repented of your sins and placed your trust in Christ, you do not have this love of God as your own. But you need this love. You were made to be loved like this. Friend, look to the cross. The Son of God willingly offered up his life there for you out of love. He bore the sins of all who would believe, trading his perfect righteousness for all their sins. He bore the penalty for sin upon that cross for you. Do you believe? Will you believe? God's love will be poured into your heart and will overwhelm you. Salvation from hell and eternal life in heaven will be yours that exact second you yield your life to God. Surrender yourself to him. Tell God you want him to be on your side, to fight for you, to be your champion and king. Proclaim him as your Lord. The scriptures promise us in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no greater love than this, that God would lay down his life for you, a sinner. Give your life to him and he will save you in his love. Now to the saints, when we leave this place after communion, let God's love drive away all doubts of salvation and all doubt of God's care for us. And let us exude love to our creator and to our fellow man, both in conversations and in our actions amongst one another. As, John 1, as 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Father God, such a magnificent, magnificent love. What can we do but just stand in awe of you? You created us for your glory. God, we are just your servants, and yet you love us. You sent your son to die for us, to redeem us from the pit, to sanctify us, to glorify us, to make 
us like your son and to spend eternity with him forever, partaking of all his riches, praising him forever, the glory to his name. God, set this ablaze forever in our minds. Might we always be enthralled with your love. God, if there are any here today who do not know this love, save them, Lord. May they reject themselves, recognize their sin for what it is, repent of it, and turn to you, O God. I pray for salvation this morning to come. I pray for your love to fill every heart and soul to overflowing. Work in us by your spirit, Lord God. We love you. In Jesus' name.